This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Interesting week where we've heard a lot about, basically, we've got to take this slowly in terms of reopening. Uh, We do want to get to our virus update. What I noticed, Jason, is it's back among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. Because I remember last week, with stocks rallying and a lot of optimism, the update had slipped down the list on the Bloomberg terminal. But uh, it's back up there. And it's on an interesting day and week where a lot's going on. Let's get to Dr. Ian Lusbader. He's one of our go-to voices when it comes to the virus. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical. Center. He joins us once again on the phone in New York City. So good to have you back with us, um, Dr. Les Bader. You know, it's interesting, and I thought something that really stuck out with me from Dr. Anthony Fauci this week, when I think he was pushed by senators to say, well, wait a minute, maybe you don't know everything about the virus, and maybe some other countries are doing it differently, like Sweden, and maybe that makes more sense. And he basically said, we still don't know about this virus. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about children being impacted in a different way. It's just a reminder of how much we don't know. So I'm curious, here we are in our ninth week of being home. Um, How do you see things when it comes to the virus? I hope you guys are uh, doing well. And uh, I I certainly uh, would agree with Dr. Fauci on this. This is a uh, unique virus. It it does seem to be related to other coronaviruses, but really seems to behave, you know, in a different way. Most coronaviruses like adenoviruses or rhinoviruses, you know, will give you more of the common cough, cold, that sort of thing. But to have uh, all all your organs involved, virus... uh, you know, on on uh, pathology seen in the kidney and the heart, in the liver, in the gut, uh, in the brain, causing strokes and pulmonary emboli on clots. Uh, that is unique, and we don't know a lot about uh, the virus, and we certainly don't know uh, whether a vaccine will work or how well it will work. Uh, and that's certainly uh, one of the big areas of interest uh, recently. So uh, definitely a lot of challenges. And exactly as you also say, that for a long time, uh, since January, uh, we thought kids would be relatively spared. Mm. And it did seem that, that the sickest patients generally, and that's still more or less the case, um, men above 60, 65 with other issues, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, we certainly see women, and now we're certainly seeing children. So the whole sort of understanding as, as to who are the really, who are the risk groups and what to do is a challenge. Um, but we're certainly encouraged by some news of at least starting some trials on uh, vaccines, and many companies are are looking into it. One company that's very interesting is, you know, Moderna doing the messenger RNA, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we're, we're going to be starting that study uh, at NYU and at some other sites. So before we dig any more into the vaccine element, uh, Ian, I, I want to ask you, on these new findings, and which are, as both you and Carol say, somewhat troubling in terms of how the disease presents and, and manifests and the, the people who it affects, 
how does that change the medical approach and how should it change our approach as we do think about reopening and further spikes in infection? Well, you know, in terms of uh, reopening, I I think it's hard to pick a specific date. Uh, Certainly in New York, I think we picked uh, June 6th. You know, why not June 5th or June 7th or June 1st? You know, that's sort of an arbitrary time. And I think no matter when you go back, there will be some risk and certainly some increased risk uh, in spikes. And, of course, if we had really a treatment, and and people are looking at different treatments, sort of this uh, triple cocktail of uh, some anti-HIV medications and ribavirin and, and interferon and so forth, you know, we may have a, a cocktail, but that's certainly not for outpatients. It's not for the patient who comes in with a cough and diarrhea, sore throat, you know, in your office, and you'd like to give them a pill to prevent them from progressing, uh, not to mention quickly doing a test uh, such as a nasal swab. So you're right. I think seeing more children now is very confusing. Is the virus mutating? Mm-hmm. Have we been missing this? Uh, we don't really know. Uh, and hopefully, again, something like a vaccine will give people more confidence. Uh, one thing we're doing is certainly is sending a lot more blood tests. So blood tests for antibodies are, are much easier to obtain. And I'm certainly seeing a number of patients in my practice who are antibody positive. Uh, and we think that should make it relatively safer to go back. Uh, but we really don't know that. It's really the same concept of the vaccine. Just because you have antibodies doesn't always mean you're not going to get the disease. Think of influenza, right? We get a, a, a yearly influenza shot. Right. does not protect us necessarily, or it may help. HIV. People have high antibodies to HIV virus, but unfortunately still have progressive disease. Herpes. People will get herpes outbreaks, and they have herpes uh, antibodies. So uh, this goes all the way back to when vaccines started uh, in 1796, at least in the West, uh, you know, when Edward Jenner vaccinated a 13-year-old boy with cowpox vaccinia to try and prevent smallpox. That happened to work well. And that's been our model really ever since that, you know, is to give low doses of the virus or inactivated. And we have vaccines now for uh, bacteria like pneumonia, pneumococcus, not all pneumonias, but pneumococcal pneumonia, uh, you know, tetanus and a variety of different vaccines. And most usually work, but typically they they reduce the symptoms. They don't always 100% right. uh, prevent. Let's continue our conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. So, Ian, we were talking a little bit about vaccines. Do you have any sort of latest thoughts or what are you reading and hearing about timelines? We heard what Dr. Fauci said yesterday. What's the buzz uh, among the doctors? So typically, you know, most vaccines take quite a while there. They go through different phases, a safety phase, and then an effectiveness phase, and then a dose phase. I mean, there are different, you know, stages to to really get this. And in the old days, even dating back to 1796 with Edward Jenner, typically, um, you know, you give a, a low dose of an inactivated or weakened, right. you know, virus or bacteria. You get an immune response, and usually it's protective. As we said, not all that doesn't work all the time. For example, HIV or influenza, herpes, others will get a response, but not always a totally effective one. What seems 
uh, encouraging, hopefully, uh, is the Moderna uh, style vaccine, which is something called messenger RNA, where messenger RNA is uh, inoculated instead of, um, uh, the, say, the COVID virus itself or an inactivated COVID virus. It's a messenger RNA, which codes for a small part of the virus, say the spike protein, that should be recognized as foreign and generate an immune response that hopefully is protective, similar to uh, what they were talking about at Johns Hopkins, which is, you know, convalescent plasma. People have high antibodies. It does seem to help people who are very sick with the virus. So hopefully, similar concept. We'll have to see if it works. The messenger RNA is injected. It's incorporated into the human or host cells. It uses the cells, your own cells, um, uh, machinery to make this protein. It's not a complete virus. It's just this, say, spike protein. The body recognizes that, forms antibodies. And then we have to see, will that really protect you? Uh, And that it takes time then to have people exposed to the real COVID virus to see if that vaccine really does protect you. But it's a unique way. It's a faster way, really, of getting... Uh, people immunized. So I think that and other companies are working on different techniques, Pfizer and some other companies. But just like with Abbott, where uh, you have a test and it turns out that it's not 100% accurate, or you may need to do it several times on a patient to finally get a positive when you know they're sick with COVID and and their swab comes back negative. That's frustrating when you know they have it. Hopefully, this messenger RNA vaccine, which is really unique, we're looking at different ways of getting the body to develop an immune response that are safer, for example, than giving someone uh, a live virus like mumps, measles, or rubella, or attenuated viruses. So the hope is this can also be manufactured, you know, more quickly and administered more quickly, um, but we don't really have the results of that yet. Those studies are just starting now. I have to say, you made me nervous, though, when we first kicked off and you said, you know, we don't know, ultimately, if a vaccine will work. Right. Carol, I hate making you nervous or... or, Well, (laughs) but you know what I mean? But yet, I just, you know, because everyone keeps pointing to to that is the way we get back to normal, um, Ian. And I do wonder, if we're not able to do that, what does that mean? Do we have to just accept that there's going to be more risk in our society and people will lose their lives as a result of it? You know, I think there's always risk. Uh, I think there is actually a risk of people staying home. I see many patients who are very upset, sad, depressed. So I do think we need to edge back to, to returning. I think we'd all feel safer with a vaccine. This, to me, seems very encouraging. But again, it's uncharted territory. So we really will have to just wait and see if, A, if uh, antibodies are produced, and B, if those antibodies really protect you. We certainly know we have convalescent plasma you know, to the whole virus, Mm -hmm. which does seem to help very sick patients. And we're doing studies on that for hospitalized patients. That's an intravenous infusion. You know, we're not going to give that to people in the office who come in with a cough or a cold. But hopefully the vaccine, which should be faster, easier to uh, develop and and hopefully then manufacture for a large number of people, even if it provides some immunity or reduces the severity of the illness or shortens the illness, I think that would still be Uh, very encouraging, but we don't know yet. Absolutely. A lot we don't know. uh, And you are right to bring all of that to our attention. Dr. Ian Lesvader, always good to catch up with you. Really appreciate you taking some time. We know it's a very, very busy time for any doctor, especially one on the front lines like you are. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center on the phone from New York City, Carol.
And the thing is, I guess it's just we keep pointing to here's how we get back to normal, right? Or yeah. normal, right? And and I just do wonder it's going to be probably a variety of things that are going to have to be done to for people who get get sick, but maybe there's a way to mitigate the worst effects of it, you know? And maybe and there's it's not binary. No. We're going to have to live with this in some form or fashion. I think that's what we're learning every day. Yeah, I think so too. And just have to learn to isolate the most vulnerable populations if we can and take care of those that are really hurt. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Master here with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Well, many of us are working from home. We know a lot of traders are working from home. And there's quite a callback uh, in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's the excerpt. An excerpt from a really terrific new book. It is called Flash Crash, A Trading Savant, A Global Manhunt, and the Most Mysterious Market Crash in History. Liam Vaughn wrote it. Joel Weber put it in his magazine. And Joel joins us from Brooklyn. This is an amazing read. I, I feel like this is a little bit, and I've said this before, Joel, a little bit of a, you're revealing your past as the editor of Bloomberg Markets here. I love this. Well, First of all, it's um, not my magazine. It's our magazine. Oh, of course, um, there and, you go. And the only way Aww. we can, you know, make it make it work is by having some pretty incredible uh, writers and reporters. And you know, this this um, article, um, which is an excerpt of Liam's book, is really kind of a case in point. Um, and it's an incredible story and one that is actually, I think, kind of relevant for the moment because obviously um, the flash crash was the biggest event until yeah. um, basically well, March. That's what's amazing. Like, I forgot. First of all, it's 10 years ago. And that's like to get my head around it. I mean, I know time, we're all living in this very weird, bizarro world right now when it comes to time. But I was like, wow, that was 10 years ago um, that this happened. And I remember it was kind of nonstop reporting because it was a really big deal in trying to figure out how did it happen. And then as the stories, the details, I was going to say, this is like Netflix and Amazon, you know, wanting to already turn this into a movie, but apparently they're already going to do that, uh, is yeah, what they, I understand. They are. And, you know, the- the book is um it's basically just out um flash crash i feel like the the book reading material next to my bedside table just keeps getting higher <laughs> right. and it keeps totally. getting higher actually with colleagues who are writing books like there's Sarah Fryer yeah. who's written this great instagram book and Susan Susan Furfield who just came out with her book which we talked about on on last week's show and this one i think is right up there um and I think, you know, the thing that's also kind of amazing about this is, like, here's this guy who's basically a work-from-home trader, right? And, like, if yeah. ever there's a role model that you probably don't want to emulate, but also he did make a lot of money while he did it, like, you know, here, here's some inspiration. And, you know, the thing that I, I kind of think is, bears um, some some discussion here is that he was basically uh, uh, give, put, in, put under house arrest. Right? Yeah. That, his, his sentence was basically waived. He, so they said, you have to spend a year at home. And he basically went into, you know, house arrest right yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic. We're all living we're all living through uh through NAV on this one. So we're, Liam- we're all the we're all the trader now. All right, Liam Vaughn, come on in here. You wrote it. We've been talking about you behind your back. Congratulations on the book. Uh first of all, incredibly timely in, in a lot of ways for all the reasons that, that Joel just laid out. Remind us who this guy is. So Navinda Singh Sarau was a sort of very ordinary guy who grew up in a 
quite a working class area of West London called Hounslow, uh, about a mile away from the, uh, the Heathrow Airport. So literally his house, um, you can count the windows on the planes as they kind of land. Um, and he was a gifted kid, a uh, bit of an odd kid, but very good at maths. Uh, and one day saw an advert in a newspaper that said, wanted tra- uh, traders, um, you know, must work well under pressure. And he applied for this advert and it was for a trading arcade. Um, and it was about as far away from kind of Wall Street and the whole, you know, world of high finance as you, as you can really imagine. Um, but Nav had this amazing gift and he got, uh, you know, he sort of arrived in the markets at this really crucial time when the pits had just closed, but there wasn't such a thing as really algorithmic trading yet. So if you were a really gifted kind of um, gamer type, or if you had, you know, very good uh, mathematical skills, you could really profit, you know, uh, very quickly from short-term trading. Uh, so Nav, you know, became very, very quickly uh, incredibly good and incredibly wealthy uh, and was, was a millionaire in fairly short shrift. Uh, but the reason he became famous is not because of that. It's because once high-frequency traders do start to kind of enter the marketplace, human scalpers, as they're called, like him, found that they were increasingly uh, getting beaten to the punch and, you, you know, it was hard to make a living anymore. And rather than sort of bowing out at that point, Nav made this fateful decision that he was going to fight back and so he built an algorithm of his own, which he called NavTrader. Um, and what it did is essentially fire false orders into the market in order to deceive the algorithms about whether the uh, market was about to go up or down. Um, and this machine, even though he kind of came up with it off the top of his head, didn't know anyone in the kind of industry, proved to be incredibly successful. And by the time the FBI knocked on his door in 2015, he was worth $70 million. Jeez. And I feel like we all learned about spoofing too, right? We all, if we didn't know about it, we learned about it because that was certainly something he was in on big time. Well, the, the interesting thing about spoofing is that it, it only became illegal in 2011 with the introduction of Dodd-Frank. And before that, it was kind of understood that in financial markets, if you place an order, um, the, you know, it's no indication really of whether you intend to um, take a long position or a short position. It's no statement about your true intentions. It's just an order. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of people believe that sort of deception in the markets is part and parcel of the cut and thrust of financial markets. But in 2011, after a lot of lobbying by... Um, some high-frequency trading firms, um, they introduced a new yeah. rule which out- outlawed spoofing for the first time. Um, so basically, you know, if you imagine high-frequency trading firms are just looking at all the orders in the order book coming in and using that to statistically analyze whether the market's about to go up or down and then using very fast computers to jump ahead of that. Um, and so if you spoof the market by placing orders that you don't intend to actually execute, that you're going to cancel, Um, you deceive the robots, really, about the sort of true state of supply and demand. Um, And they react to it, even though they're, you know, hugely sophisticated firms run by all these kind of PhDs. They were actually, in this instance, quite easy to to fool. Well, got to say, it's just um, a fascinating excerpt, and I can only imagine how great the rest of the book is. So um, something certainly to put on your reading list Quarantine right now. read. Quarantine yeah. read. 
Liam Vaughn, thank you so much. Bloomberg News Senior Reporter joining us uh, on the phone. And, of course, our Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber, joining us on the phone as well. And I, and I, it's been into it's already been picked up for development for in a movie starring dev patel so yeah <laughs> get ready everybody's coming to the big screen dev patel there's some dog millionaire right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I can there already you know. see it if you read, oh i can totally see it i well, can 100 percent see it just reading this piece there's a little snippet right about talking about how he was when he was trading and just yeah. so focused and so you can totally see it up on the big big screen you're listening to bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio well, it's the top story of the day by far. Certainly, Chairman Jay Powell's comments uh, having a negative effect on the markets and certainly the sentiment out there. You heard a little bit of what he had to say there in Charlie Pellet's newscast. Let's hear a little bit more, if we can, from the Fed Chairman Powell. He spoke earlier today, as Charlie mentioned, at a virtual event with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. While the economic response has been both timely and appropriately large, It may not be the final chapter, given that the path ahead is both highly uncertain and subject to significant downside risks. Economic forecasts are uncertain in the best of times, and today the virus raises a new set of questions. All right. So if you weren't sobered by Dr. Anthony Fauci yesterday, you definitely were today by Fed Chief Jay Powell, of course, speaking today uh, earlier in a video conference, a virtual conference with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So let's get into this with our economics team. Kathleen Hayes is with us, global economics and policy editor at Bloomberg News, uh, on the phone from the Poconos. Yelena Shalechiva, our senior U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics, on the phone from Long Island. I mean, clearly our top story today is what we heard from Fed Chief Jay Powell. And we've been calling it the one-two punch, uh, Elena and Kathleen, coming after Dr. Fauci, what he said yesterday, which was very sobering, and then to hear from Jay Powell again today, also very sobering when it comes to the outlook. Um, Kathleen, let me start with you. Um, what was your feeling when you heard that from Jay Powell? Well, I'll tell you, um, when I was waiting for it to start, I was, was tweeting out a couple different things. And the, one of the first things I tweeted was, you know, countdown to Powell. Let's see how adamantly he rejects negative rates. He did. And then, <laughs> and then when Adam Posen started Peters at Institute for International Economics asking questions, he had kind of broad, interesting questions. I was thinking, come on, Adam, you got to get to negative rates. I tweeted, please, Adam. And I th- just as soon as I finished, he was, he was, this was on his list. We know it was. Anyway, he asked the question and as expected, Jay Powell, you know, said, bas- the, the, the punchline was, no, we haven't changed our mind. We're not going to go move towards negative rates. We've got tools. Our tools are working. And remember, it's a little technical, but there are money market funds in this country. We've got a different kind of financial system. It's another reason why they don't even want to think about this. Um, but I think it was also the fact that he said, basically, you know, there is potentially more to do monetary and fiscal. The longer you stay at, with these these bad unemployment levels, people might lose their jobs permanently. Their careers might be it ruined. It gets sticky, right? But, the, you know, the thing is, though, I think what's interesting to me, you guys, is that a couple of others, n- notably Jim Bullard, St. Louis Fed, have said, look, if we don't reopen soon now as we can you know safely but still we got to go you guys we could have a grand scale of bankruptcies that's what he said yesterday and even a depression jay powell hasn't taken it quite that far but i think that's something that's a little bit different from what anthony fauci is saying the epidemiologists are saying don't open don't risk any more deaths etc but i think there's another way of looking at this as you know you're gonna we're gonna kill some part of the economy or even mm-hmm. our people if we don't move but well um, i will I, say though kathleen is that fauci did say yesterday and he was very clear that i'm a medical expert but he said if if we come back too yes. soon we have a second wave that will impact the economy even harder. So he did make the connection there. 
Well, I think it's, it's, it's some people would say, uh, ultimately, we are going to have deaths. That you're, you flatten the curve, you just move the deaths out into the future. But thank God you don't overwhelm the mm. hospitals. A lot of people, Sweden, for example, arguing for, you know, you got to get herd immunity because the vaccine is going to take a while to get here. Right. All right. So, Yelena, come on in here. What does Chair Powell tell us in light of the data that you're seeing? What is he looking at? That makes him, that sort of gives him this perspective, and and how does it affect your outlook? Hearing what he had to say, uh, everything he said uh, today was actually quite in line with uh, what we are expecting in terms of economic outlook. Uh, so they are looking at the same data, and uh, the recovery depends on unknowable, and I'm quoting Chair Powell, questions related to the coronavirus. So. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about how uh, this reopening uh, of uh, states after the the crisis will occur. So w- will we have uh, uh, another outbreak? Will it go slowly? So uh, it seems like the um, consensus here is that it will go slowly. There will no be a V-shaped recovery. And the Fed is adjusting to that. And uh, not only they are adjusting to that, but they stand ready to provide even more support to the economy than they have already done. So uh, despite the unprecedented response that we have seen from them so far, they are ready to go further in terms of expanding the balance sheet, in terms of their forward guidance and so on. One thing, and Kathleen mentioned that earlier, and I would like to reiterate, not only did Powell reaffirm the stance on negative interest rates, but he emphasized the unanimous agreement on the FOMC that they're not uh, ready to go there. Mm -hmm. So, Kathleen, yes, there may be more that that the Fed can do, but it also seems like he sent a pretty clear message to Capitol Hill that lawmakers need to step back in and, and do something. Did you did you hear and read that the same oh, way? Absolutely. And I think he's he's kind of said that before. And of course, yeah. Adam Posen asked him this kind of broad question again about, you know, uh, giving fiscal advice or taking a stance. But he hasn't been afraid to do that. I yeah. think um, when one of his last public speeches, people were much more impressed by that. But I think he too can see that, that, that you need to do something and, and you can't just let if it's not working, the monetary policy we've done fiscally so far, you got to do whatever it takes, right? And the Congress has to come along. Of course, now we get into a much more um, a political territory the Fed doesn't have to face in the same way. Republicans, Democrats having a somewhat different view. Republicans saying, let's see how this all affects right. the economy. Democrats saying, no, we've got to go now. But definitely the Fed chair, I think, is making it pretty clear. If we don't, we have to do something, right, no right. matter how he, questionable it might be. I just want to jump in just very quickly. Yelena, are you getting more nervous that we're going to be in a pretty severe recession on the other side a little bit more protracted we we will be and that's not uh, a need for uh this is about how long it will uh take us uh to get out of there well that's what i mean do you are you getting more nervous that it's going to go on much longer than everybody anticipated it it will take years to get back to uh where we were it will take at least three years to get to, to the same level we were before the crisis not even talking about growth uh from there yeah. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for your insights, both of you. Yelena Shalecheva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us on the phone. And Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor, joining us from Pennsylvania. She said three years, right, to get back to normal? Yeah. I think that tracks with a lot of what totally. uh, we've been hearing. 
Yeah, yeah for totally. sure. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Green. It is brought to you by PGM. Outlast today's uncertainty with the long-term perspective of PGM, the investment management business of Prudential. Find out more at pgim.com. Carol. Well, Jason, you know, so much in our world, as we know, is not going as planned. And that applies to to electrification. Writing about that in our Bloomberg Green segment, we're doing this every week, uh, bringing you some of the coverage from our Bloomberg Green team. It's about how investors are really starting to think about this revolution and how it's going to look a little different post-COVID-19. Emily Chasen is sustainability editor at uh, Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from New York City. Emily, so glad to have you here with us. Uh, Jason, I both both love this vertical here at Bloomberg and glad that we can bring it out to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about electrification, right? Because we have been, I feel like the last couple of years, and thank you, Elon Musk and others, all in on electrification in many different ways. Um, Tell us about where we are and what happens because of the virus. Yeah, so this is really interesting because before the virus, um, people thought the way to get more renewable power is to actually demand more power, right? So we need more things that demand electricity than demand gas. So that means you want an electric stove and a electric grill and not a natural gas version. You want electric cars and not internal combustion engines. You want electric heat pumps and energy storage, not diesel generators and fossil fuels, right? So we've been looking at this for a long time and saying we have to electrify everything if we're going to get to where we want to go on renewable energy goals to meet the Paris Climate Agreement. And um, what's happened with COVID is that suddenly the economics that were supporting a lot of that electrification are not really there um, for some of the things. So people are not that bullish right now on the ability of consumers to go out and buy an electric car. There are long waiting lists right now that have supported some electric car sales. But um, like they think people working from home, you might not have a reason to buy a car. You might not need, you might not have the money to go buy a new car. Um, You've lost your job. So there's a lot of um, changes there, and then some of the development stuff that had been planned has been shelved, um, and so there's, there's, it's just going to look a little bit different now, yeah. but it's still going to happen. Right. And so happen at maybe a, a slower pace. So take us sort of a, a step down, uh, if you can, Emily, like where, where are you seeing the most dramatic uh, either pullbacks or, and, and maybe where are you seeing some progress? Well, I guess progress upfront is the biggest issue is going to be the fleet where um, you can electrify a fleet of cars rather than um, individuals buying the car, which is actually much more efficient, right? If you can run your whole business on electric cars or electric buses or electric work vehicles, um, electric factory vehicles, you'll save a lot of money on inputs. And honestly, that would probably still happen because the input there is like zero and you still have to pay a little bit for fossil fuels. But the impetus for some companies won't be as much as it was because they're not going to be saving as much money given the oil price crash. Right. Hey, Emily, you know, one thing I wonder, Jason and I have talked a lot on air, you know, and we've all, you know, tweeted out or sent out on social media, you know, how the earth is looking with the, you know, world shut down. People aren't driving cars, you know, skies are clearer, uh, less pollution. Uh, We hear about it on the West Coast. And I do wonder that awareness, raised awareness, does it stay with us on the other side and and maybe conversely help in the electrification of the world? Or is it going to be even tougher if the economy, as we just talked with our economics team, we're talking about an economy that's going to take maybe three years to get back to where it was pre-COVID-19. I just wonder what are the conversations you guys are having about that and what you're hearing? 
Yeah, well, people all over seem really invested in resiliency, that resiliency is sort of becoming the theme of the decade. And people are saying, you know, if we spend three years recovering from COVID-19, we can't go back to where we were. Everyone's talking about this build back better idea. And so electrification is a huge part of that. Um, and what's interesting is that things have just sort of moved around the world. You know, like when you look at, at overall power demand, it's only down about like 10 percent to 13 percent mm. in most places. So we're still using very similar amounts of electricity and power um, to run the economy, even though we're doing it not in centralized um, ways anymore. It's all that streaming roll at home and yeah. into the wee hours. <laughs> burn it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I mean, are investors sort of backing off of this, Emily? I mean, ultimately, this comes down to, in, in part, whether the money is flowing to the right sorts of projects. Right. Well, I guess the huge issue there is um, stimulus, right? Because that's mm-hmm. going to direct a lot of the the money. Um, investors who focus on this area are usually very long-term oriented, and they see coronavirus as kind of a blip in their 10-year plan, yeah. right? I mean, a very good blip, but a blip. And so they'll say, you know, we still have to reach those climate goals. Like, if, if coronavirus did this to our economy, just imagine what some of these climate catastrophes could do. Um so they're still going to push for a lot of these projects to happen. The issue is really whether there's going to be a fair playing field um, given the stimulus. And it's interesting, like there's countries like Canada and Germany that are going to require some green efficiency thinking right. to get stimulus. Well, it's, it's not necessarily happening in it everywhere. Well, it's interesting. I still think about was it over the last week that big story about you know um, that big the largest solar installation installation in the U.S. history. Warren Buffett's behind it. Yeah. I mean that one U.S. approval. So things, some major projects are still going ahead. So um, that will certainly help in that fight. All right. Uh, if you want to know more from Bloomberg Green, and you should check it out. You can find it at Bloomberg.com backslash green. Emily Chasen, sustainability editor at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York City. I always love just kind of browsing that yeah. uh, part some of great our, stuff. our website. And also some great infographics totally. as well. Like totally. you really can uh, learn how the world is working or maybe should work a little bit better. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Ryan Dietrich, senior market strategist at LPL Financial. $670 billion in assets under management. Ryan, back with us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, how's it going in North Carolina? Hey, Carol. First off, thanks for having me back. It's sure. doing better. You know, I mean, it, it's slowly opening up. The weather is nice, which I guess is always a plus. But, you know, driving, I go to the office every couple of days, and there are more and more people on the road than there were, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So I'm at home right now, but when I get to the office, there's definitely more people out there, and some restaurants are opening up. So maybe a little. And there's even talk that our spring sports, which were canceled, might start up in June down here. So it's very late for spring season, but maybe really coming here soon. That's the, that's the rumor. It's all to the governor, but we're getting emails already that spring sports could be crammed into one month. My sons play soccer and baseball, so we yeah. might have a lot of those in June, potentially. Well, a lot of potentialies, but we'll see. How yeah. do you feel about that? 
mixed. My wife is uh, much more cautious about it, and I guess I'm kind of like it's soccer. You know, they're not really touching anybody. It's not a ball. Let's let them go out and play. But I- I'm with you. It is. Mm. There are we weigh all of them. They interviewed like 900 people, and about two thirds of them did say they supported the idea of um, you know moving forward with this. So we'll um, we'll see. I, uh, it's definitely mixed. I think on the day, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's we're talking about it a lot up here as well as you can imagine, especially as we get into, um, you know, I have a son who plays lacrosse during the summer and, you know, the mm-hmm. summer tournament season, sort of similar to what you're talking about. I'm guessing you're involved with like travel soccer and travel baseball, you know, and you've got a lot of different people coming together and people traveling and it, they're just a lot of big questions around the sort of safety element. Yeah, one thing they said is only one parent can even go to the games. That's one way to get less yeah. people there, right? Only one right. parent can go watch, but right. that's what you got to do. So, yeah. yeah, interesting. So, speaking of mixed and, and people not quite being able to make up their minds, it feels like the market uh, over the last couple of weeks has been a little tricky to, to predict. I mean, it feels like it's a fairly clear message this last couple of days. And we started off the show talking about the, the Fauci Powell one-two punch of – kind of a reality check of, of where we are and where we go from here. How do you read it, especially from a technical perspective, Ryan? Well, yeah, Jason, you're right. Let's not forget, you know, Tepper came out and said yeah. it's the second most overvalued market he's seen since 99, and Druckenmiller said the risk-reward is one of the worst he's ever seen, and Buffett already said he doesn't see any good value. So you hmm. see some of the smartest investors ever, and now we've got potentially two days in a row of down 2% stocks for the first time since March 20th to March 23rd. We'll see where we close. But our take is this. I've come on with you guys for a while saying, you know, last month and a half, saying stocks likely will go higher. Uh, the oversold bounce was likely. And sure enough, of 30%, that's the case. But just in the last week and a half or so, we've become much more cautious with some of the assets that we run for our clients. And, hmm. you know, we look at things like you mentioned technicals, just simply market breadth. And to keep this very simple, S&P kept going up, but less and less stocks were participating in the rally. Some right. of the big bang stocks and large ones. That says, hey, something could crack here. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it was likely. And sure enough, boom, we've had some negative headlines, and all of a sudden we're, we're looking at what could be, in our opinion, maybe as much as a 10% correction, which would get the S&P back to 2650. And last thing I'll say, when we looked at all the major bear markets going back in history, after that initial bounce, guys, the average correction was about 10%. So we think that makes sense. We're not in the camp of new lows. not in the camp we're going to retest March lows. But it could be time, and the calendar says it could be time for a little more uh, correction here. And that's what we're seeing in the last two days. Well, you hit it, Ryan, time. I think that's the thing right now. We all expect the economy to get back to some sort of normal. Um, the, the problem is how fast and how, or how long. And we talked with our economics team saying it's going to be three years until we see the economic yep. momentum that we had pre-virus, um, you know, we see that kind of level again. And I think that's that's the thing. We all kind of need to be patient. You talked about, you know, I think getting more cautious, you said, with some of your clients. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Are you going straight to cash or cash-like investments or what are you doing? Yeah, great question there. So really the easiest way is we are removing a little bit of equity exposure, going mm-hmm. to some bonds, some cash. Honestly, we've warmed to gold. We've liked gold for a while. We've added some gold in some of our our portfolios, and also just a little more defensive, something like staples, right? If you look at staples, really solid earnings. I mean, people are still buying them, good valuations, good momentum. So those are some of the areas. But I want to be very clear here. This is more for a tactical and trade in the next couple of months of a pullback. I mean, we still think when you see the fact that 24% of GDP 
when you look at the combination of what the Fed is doing and what the fiscal policy is doing, that's a lot of backstop. That's a lot of momentum, again, that still says uh, six months from now, a year from now, we do believe stocks will be up. And, I mean, one other thing for you. So April was up 12%, right? S&P gained 12%, one of the best right. months ever. Yeah. When you take a look, six months after months gained 10%, some of the best months ever, S&P's higher nine out of 11 times up 11% on average. So we had a massive rally. It makes sense, though, to have some pullback the month or two after, and sure enough, we're seeing that. But it tends to resolve higher when we saw that blast of power in April. We're not going to ignore that. But tactically here, short term, we think a little uh, maybe better pitch makes sense to us here. So sell in May, go away. Uh, Is that one of the things that's been uh, thrown out in this pandemic uh, environment, Ryan? Yeah, it's almost too, e- too too simple and too easy to p- point out, but it's the truth. You think about last year? I mean, S&P gained 30% last year. What was the biggest correction we had all year? It was May and June. And I know it's yeah. a U.S.-China trade dispute, but for whatever reason, the summer months tend to be when we get some of these corrections, and it is what it is. The next six months are the worst on the calendar. And when you lay over the fact that we just had the best six months, right, and those were down. So the best six months weren't even higher. So your sell may go away period actually gets worse. When stocks are down for the year, heading into the worst six months, the returns get worse those next six months. So the calendar is really doing people no favor, and I get it. The headlines are what matter. If we get some vaccine, let's pray we do, we get a vaccine sooner than expected or some breakthrough in drugs, you can throw throw that out the window. But the reality of the fact is it's still up 31% and there's some technical levels without participation with the calendar it all makes sense to us, some type of downside risk. Um, it is uh, more than likely. Well, and the problem is we keep talking about reality checks and also just how everything that right. our expectations have been turned upside down, and we really don't know. We, we don't know the playbook on this. We know other crises, but we just don't exactly know how it all comes together on the other side. Ryan Dietrich, good to hear that you're safe. Uh, nice to check in with you once again. Senior market strategist at LPL Financial, $670 billion in assets under management. Jason, on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. I love hearing kind of what the reality yeah, uh, in different cities and different states, um, kind of helps tell the picture. I hope the I hope the kids are out playing soccer and baseball this summer. I mean, seriously, I that know, that will I be know. that will be a good sign. And I I do think that those are the sorts of things you know. And obviously, it's going to be a little bit different, as he said, one parent on the sidelines, and yeah. uh, you know, we'll see how this plays out. But those are the sorts of things that as as they come into uh, reality that are going to make people uh, feel a lot better. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.